Um, we can listen reverently while seated as well as while standing. The point is reverence, not our posture so much. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We have been working our way through Galatians in the evening, uh, but I decided to preach this this morning. Uh, this is actually the second part of a one sermon. Uh, those of you who have been around long enough uh, know that I uh, I feel like certain passages should be preached together as one sermon, but sometimes I run out of time in trying to preach that one passage, so I break the passage into two parts, and you have to come back on another day for the second part or later in the day, uh, depending. Um, this is one of those sermons, and this is actually the second part of uh, a two-part sermon. Uh, from one passage. It's, uh, the passage, by the way, is Matthew, uh, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21, reading through 5-1. So I will remind you, uh, for those of you that weren't at the evening service when I preached this some weeks back, the first part, I'll remind you all uh, what we covered then and, and summarize it for you so you know what the first point was, and uh, we'll spend most of our time on the second point of this sermon. So here is the pre- preaching passage. The pericope is uh, uh, it's known in uh, uh, scholarly circles. Starting in verse twenty-one, this is the word of the Lord. Listen carefully and reverently to it. Galatians four. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons one by the bondwoman, and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, 
We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. Amen. Amen? We need more amens at the end of uh, readings of the scriptures and other places too. It's okay to sound a little Baptist-like once in a while. We need to do that. Presbyterians can be a little too quiet sometimes in their worship, I suspect. Yes, thank you. There we go. All right. Uh, Join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this fascinating text. All your word is fascinating, Lord, but this is is more evidently fascinating to me uh, and perhaps to some of us, uh, the rest of us here. Lord, we pray that we would be well and carefully instructed as I preach. Would you please, Lord Jesus, um, uh, tie my tongue if I'm tempted to say something that's improper or not uh, properly uh, under, uh, is not properly expounding what you are saying in your written word. Uh, but Lord, please help me to speak boldly your truth, uh, to accurately unpack the scriptures uh, in such a way that uh, your people would be blessed and encouraged, uh, and also those who are walking in darkness who may be listening to me might be brought to the light, uh, your light. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kids, you know what a slave is. And those of you who were here for that previous passage, uh, the first part of this sermon, rather, I'm using the same illustration, but I want to remind you of it because it's, a, it's important, okay? So some of you children were not, did not hear the first portion of this sermon. So do you know what a slave is, children? Some of you may, and some of you may not. Uh, we don't have slavery anymore in the United States. Uh, some 150 years ago, there was, uh, uh, or thereabouts, there was, we had slavery, the practice of slavery in this country, but we don't anymore. Uh, but you might have heard of uh, slavery, and you might have heard in the Bible uh, slaves addressed or a discussion of slaves when your parents were reading the Bible to you. Um, what a slave is, children, is it's someone, a man or a woman or a child, who is, whose life, at least their outward life, not their inward life, not their heart, but their outward life and what they do is controlled fully by another person. Uh, really, uh, for those of you adults in the room, there, it's the, the slave owner does not own the person's soul, he owns his labor. Uh, is uh, bib- what biblical slavery was, um, and what any kind of slavery is. You don't own the person's soul; you own their labor. But so, but the point is, children, that uh, the slave, his life or her life, is controlled by another person, his outward life. And uh, we say that when that someone who is a slave, uh, to say a person is a slave is we say they are enslaved. I'm going to use that 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 word uh, several times during this sermon. So uh, to be enslaved is to be somebody's slave, okay? Uh, to be the slave of someone or something. Now, people can be enslaved and oftentimes are enslaved when we talk about slavery to other people. So the Bible in the New Testament, by the way, not just the Old, 
But the Bible addresses uh, slaves and tells slaves how to act properly, Christian slaves. It also talks about, to masters, how they are to treat their slaves. Uh, Christian masters are how they are to treat their slaves. So the Bible, uh, and people can be enslaved to other people who are called their masters. But you know what, children? And this is the point I'm trying to make here, so listen. People, we, can also be enslaved to what I'm going to call a principle or a law, okay, or an idea. People can be enslaved to principles or ideas or laws, um, and that is usually, with the exception of being a Christian, which we are slaves of righteousness to God, that's good slavery. But to be enslaved usually to ideas other than the idea of the gospel is a bad thing. And it is a bad thing here where Paul is talking in this passage about slavery. Okay, So Paul is, and the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit through Paul, is condemning being enslaved to a principle that is ungodly, a law that is ungodly. And so you'll hear that in this uh, uh, well, just now here, as I as I start to ref, ref, uh, refresh what we did uh, in the first part of the sermon. So listen carefully to that idea of what's the slave, what's the slave idea, and then what's what's the who's free, who's enslaved, and who's free, which is the Christian. We'll get to that. Okay. So <clears throat> prior to the writing of Paul's letter to the Galatians, here there were certain men who were claiming to be Christian teachers, they were teachers claiming to be Christians, but who were going around to the various congregations in Galatia, the region of Galatia, after which this letter is named, and these men were proclaiming a message uh, of justification by faith in Christ plus good works or law-keeping. That's what they were proclaiming. They were proclaiming that you are justified, uh, which is, um, remember, there are three ways you're saved. We are saved when we are born again, when we're justified. We're being saved as we're being sanctified, and we're going to be saved uh, when we get to heaven. And the Bible talks about salvation in all three ways. So salvation here uh, is, we're talking specifically about justification, being pardoned of our sin and being declared righteous in the sight of God as our judge. Okay, which happens the moment we believe in Jesus. So, these men were saying, you're justified, you're pardoned of your sin, and you're made right before God by faith in Jesus, but also, they said, by your good works, by your keeping of the law. That's what they were teaching. Um, specifically, the law of Moses. And these teachers... Uh, told their Galatian audiences that they uh, had that the message that Paul had preached to them some years earlier, prior to the writing of this uh, book, that the message that Paul had preached to them, namely that justification is by faith alone, not by works, but faith alone in Christ alone, they said that message was somewhat defective that Paul gave to you. Oh, I've got a problem here, don't I? How's that? Is that better? Really? I can't hear myself. Can you all hear me? All right. 
Good. Thank you. Um, okay, back to the point. So they were telling him Paul's message is defective. He meant well, but he didn't quite get it right. We're going to get. We're going to give you the right message. Was essentially what they said. Um, and so they told the churches in Galatia that their version of the of the gospel, what they called the gospel, their version was more in line with what the apostles in Jerusalem, the original apostles. Remember, Paul's not an original apostle. But the apostles in Jerusalem, uh, it's our message, they were saying, is more in line with uh, what they were proclaiming, uh, or are proclaiming uh, in the day. And the very opposite was true, of course. Their message was a false gospel that they were peddling as the true gospel uh, that was supposedly in line with what Peter and James and others were were teaching, which was simply not the case. Um, it was Paul's gospel proclaimed by him that was taught by the other 12 apostles. Not this this uh, this uh, uh, lie that was being peddled by these Judaizing teachers. The gospel that they were advocating was heresy of the first order, which if believed would eternally damn the person who believed what they were teaching. Uh, and so their message was a, was a was an utter perversion of the biblical truth proclaimed by Paul and the other apostles. And But apparently, sadly, apparently a significant number of the professing Christians in Galatia uh, who heard the Judaizers' message found that message of faith, of justification by faith in Christ plus good works. They found that message rather appealing. Uh, and they were attracted to this message and were uh, considering if maybe these Judaizers might have a point and that they needed to believe what the Judaizers were saying. In other words, these churchgoers who were listening to these false teachers found the idea of being under law appealing. Verse 21, Tell me, you who want to be under law, did you not listen or do you not listen to the law? They wanted to be under law in some way. And of course, those that were uh, were unconverted when they were listening truly did want to be under law. Now, there were believers, because there are believers or sinners who are, um, and you know make mistakes, there were still believers who were listening, who were kind of allured or tempted to believe what the Judaizers were teaching, but because they were truly Christians, would ultimately repudiate that message. But the church, the visible church, is a mixed bag. We talked about that in Sunday school, containing both wheat and tares. So at any rate, um, uh, the church needed to hear what Paul had to say in a big way. And so Paul writes this letter in order to persuade those who were on the fence to reject the Judaizers' false gospel uh, and to reaffirm their faith in the truth that Paul was preaching. And he, prior to this point in his letter, has used a number of different arguments to make his case uh, to get them to uh, repudiate the Judaizers' teaching. At this point, here in verse 4, the latter part of the chapter, Paul uh, challenges those of his readers who wish to be under the Mosaic Law still um, as a religious principle, he challenges them to hear what the law itself, what Moses' law actually had to say to them through the lives of Abraham's two sons. 
He says, you want to be under the law? Listen to what your law that you so admire has to say. And he recalls for them, which in this passage that we're looking at uh, this morning, he recalls for them um, certain details about the lives of these two sons, of these two women. Um, and he then expounds the spiritual meaning of <clears throat> their, situ- their circumstances, Isaac's and Ishmael's. And Ishmael's mother, Hagar, and Isaac's mother, Sarah. The first point of this two-part sermon was made last week was this that I made, and it was as follows. If you are trusting at all in your own efforts at law-keeping to make you acceptable to God, you are a spiritual child of Hagar, the slave woman. In other words, you are an Ishmael. If you are uh, trusting in your own efforts at law-keeping, to make you acceptable to God. If any of you are here today and you are trusting in your good works and you think they impress God and are going to help get you in heaven, you are sadly mistaken. You are lying to yourself and you're going to go to hell if you continue believing that principle of salvation by works. There is only one way a sinner, and we're all sinners, are going to get to heaven and not go to hell, and that is... Uh, by resting in Jesus' law-keeping so that God sees Jesus' law-keeping as our law-keeping. That's the only way you will escape the flames of hell uh, forevermore, or I will. Uh, so, if you're trusting at all in your own efforts to keep uh, uh, at law-keeping to make you acceptable to God, you're a spiritual child of Hagar, the slave woman. Hagar was Abraham's slave as was Ishmael, her son. They were both slaves of Abraham. And like Hagar and Ishmael, her son, those trusting in their own efforts are in spiritual bondage, enslaved to the covenant of works principle of do this and live and don't do this and die. That's the covenant of works principle that is... Um, that is um, echoed in the uh, pages of both the Old and the New Testament, but not as something to be followed uh, and to be trusted in as a way to get to heaven, but uh, but you hear echoes of that in the parable of the, uh, not the parable, but uh, the, the rich young ruler, uh, the, uh, the Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, you know, do this and live. Of course, the rich young ruler couldn't do anything, uh, uh, couldn't do what was required, but he, he was under the impression that he could. And Jesus said, go ahead and try. Uh, but it's also found, of course, in the uh, Old Testament uh, echoed uh, that uh, there is this principle. If somebody perfectly obeys the law of God and has absolutely no sin in his life and doesn't have Adam's sin credited to him, that he can hypothetically, like the first Adam before the fall, do this and live. Covenant of works principle. Um, but like Hagar and Ishmael, those of us who are people who are trusting in their own, their good works to get them into heaven are enslaved to this principle. And, by the way, uh, not only are they Ishmael's sons of Hagar, but also uh, there are some other things to, uh, to which the spiritual bondage of works religion corresponds. 
And we saw last time we were in this, uh, for those of you that were there, in this uh, passage that the other things that correspond to the spiritual bondage of works religion are the Mosaic Covenant in some sense. Now, not absolutely. The Mosaic Covenant was ultimately a gracious covenant. Um, it was a uh, administration of the one covenant of grace. So it was ultimately gracious. But it had a strong works uh, or law component, I should say, within it. And so, uh, and it also had types and shadows uh, that were not the reality of Christ Himself. And so, there is a sense in which that Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic administration of the Covenant of Grace was a uh, there was a, a spiritual bondage of a sort when one was under that uh, covenant. Uh, but also, spiritual bondage was also corresponded with the earthly religion, uh, the earthly Jerusalem. Of Paul's day, remember there was a false form of Judaism in uh, in Paul's day that was being widely um, uh, taught by the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and that was that salvation is by law keeping. That you go to heaven if you're a good keeper of the Mosaic law. Um, And so Paul says the Jerusalem of his day corresponds to the spiritual bondage of works religion, uh, as do the Judaizers themselves who were. Who, uh, who were afflicting, uh, the Galatian Christians, calling themselves, um, calling themselves teachers of the truth, when in fact they were teachers of the great lie. So, that brings me to the second point, which is the only point we're going to cover in the remaining time here. Um, if, <clears throat> So the first point again, one more time. If you're trusting in, at all in your own efforts at law-keeping to make you acceptable to God, then you are a spiritual child of Hagar, the slave woman. But here's the point we're going to focus on now in the remainder of our time. If you're trusting in Jesus alone to make you acceptable to God, then you are a spiritual child of Sarah, the free woman. That's the category you want to be in, by the way. So, God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, caused the life experience of Sarah and her son, Isaac, to typify the other of the two spiritual categories into which human beings fall. Remember, the first category is those who are under law. Those who are in spiritual bondage, under the law principle, the, uh, the covenant of works principle that, we, that Hagar represented. But Sarah, in God's providential dealings with her and her son Isaac, she and Isaac typify the other spiritual category, which is this second one that we're focusing on today. And that is those who are free because they are trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation. Unlike Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, Sarah herself was a free woman. Paul tells us, reminds us of that in verse 22. <clears throat> she was not enslaved to anybody. And even though she called Abraham Lord, I read that just this morning, she wasn't enslaved to him. She was under his authority, as all you ladies are to your husbands, or will be if you haven't been married yet, but are going to be. But that's not slavery, as much as uh, Gloria Steinem would like you to think, believe it is. <clears throat> um, but Harris, Sarah was free. Um, she was, 
at the time <clears throat> that the promise was given, she was the only wife, the only wife that Abraham had when God promised to give Abraham a son from his own body. Sarah was it. She was his wife. Um, and she was a free woman. Unlike Hagar's son, Ishmael, Sarah's son, Isaac, he too was free. He was a representative of freedom. He was free on account of the fact that his mother was free. And the manner in which Isaac was conceived was far different from the way in which Ishmael was conceived. Let me recall for you those two that uh, those two uh, conceptions. Okay, so first, <clears throat> as you may recall from your reading of uh, of uh, Genesis and also from uh, uh, sermons past, Ishmael was conceived on account of Abraham's unwillingness to continue believing the promise which God had given him. Where is that promise found? That promise was found in Genesis chapter 15. Turn with me there. Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. And keep your your hand in Genesis because we're going to, in a few moments, uh, uh, look at another passage in Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 15, This is the inauguration of the Abrahamic covenant. It was first initially, uh, was initially um, spoken in chapter 12, and here it is inaugurated uh, or confirmed. Inaugurated. And uh, verse 15, not verse 15, no, chapter 15, verse 4. Uh, I'll, I'll back up. I'll back up to verse 1 and read all the way through verse 4. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what will thou give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, he's talking here about Eliezer Eliezer of Damascus, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body, he shall be your heir. And remember, as God is telling Abraham this, he has one wife, and that wife is Sarah. Right? Implicit in the promise that God gives here to Abraham in Genesis 15 is the assumption that Sarah would be the mother of that child of promise. Right? Because of when it's given. But, when Sarah fails to conceive in a timely fashion, as Sarah and Abraham defined timely fashion, when Sarah failed to conceive... Abraham's faith in this promise in Genesis 15.4 that he had given to him, Abraham's faith in that promise, in God's promise, began to waver. Look at verse 16, verse 2. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. 
Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And here's the important part of that verse, most important. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Dumb thing to do. Sinful thing to do. But he did. He lost faith in God's promise and listened to his wife who was not speaking wisdom at that moment in time or in faith. So he... Uh, so at Sarah's urging, Abraham does what she urges him to do, and that is he decides to take matters into his own hands by taking Hagar as his second wife and having relations with her. The product of this unbelieving attempt to help God out was Ishmael. And because of the manner in which Ishmael was conceived... He came to represent to all those uh, came to represent rather all those who look to themselves and their own efforts. Uh, looked at themselves and their own efforts to achieve God's will rather and to please God rather than looking to God for that. Ishmael became representative of people who don't trust God because of his mother's behavior, and his father's, actually. Um, He becomes representative of those who look to themselves and their own efforts to achieve God's will. Now, Isaac, on the other hand, his conception is diametrically opposed to this, right? And you know the story. Unlike the manner in which Ishmael had been conceived, human effort played no part in uh, Isaac's conception. Right? Remember that Abraham and Isaac, they were way past childbearing age at this point in their lives. Both of them. Way past childbearing age. And yet, Sarah conceives. She conceives. Why? By the way, she is 90 years old and Abraham is 100 years old at this point. And she can say, conceives only because God intervenes and does it supernaturally, miraculously. He causes Isaac to be conceived in the womb of his mother by Abraham, his father. And no man, no woman, nobody could take any credit for bringing Isaac into the world, unlike the case with Ishmael. God alone was responsible for Isaac's existence. Now you can say the same about Ishmael, of course, in another sense. But you know what I'm saying. Nobody could say, well, I helped God out with Isaac, unlike Ishmael. And so because of the manner in which Isaac was conceived, that he was conceived by God alone, by God's grace alone, God's work alone, Isaac came to represent all those who rely upon God alone to make them right with him. And it's important to note, by the way, that Isaac and Ishmael were at odds just as Hagar and Sarah were at odds. Look with me at verses 29 and 30 of our text. 
I gotta get back there. Hold on. So we read verse 29 and 30. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac. So it is now when Paul's writing also, he says. And then we read in verse 30, but what does the scripture say should be done? In other words, with these two children and those they represent, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Cast out the Hagars and the Ishmaels. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir. In other words, shall not go to heaven. Heir of, of, of eternal life. Shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. See that? There is... There is diametric opposition between Ishmael and Isaac, just as there was between Hagar and Sarah. And God set it all up providentially so that that would be a living lesson for anybody who read the law, unlike the Judaizers who saw totally missed that when they read the law when they were reading Moses. And Paul instructs them and anybody who's tempted to buy into their message. The law says don't look to the law. Let's consider how a person who is trusting in Christ Jesus alone to make him or her right with God, how such a person is a spiritual child of Sarah, is, a, is an Isaac, in other words. Let's just consider that in the remaining remainder of our time together here. So, so, like Sarah and Isaac, a person who is trusting in uh, the Lord Jesus alone to make him acceptable to God is, first of all, he is free. He is free. Look at verse 28 and then verse 31. I'll read verse 28 first. And you, brethren, so Paul speaking to believers, brethren, right? who are trusting in Christ. He says, So you, brethren, and you, brethren, like Isaac, you are like Isaac, you are children of promise. Remember the promise? Genesis 15, 4. God said, I'm going to do this. You're going to have an heir from your own, from you and Sarah. You're going to have an heir. Who, by the way, was a picture of Jesus, ultimately, the seed of Christ. But, he said, you're going to have an heir, and it was God who was doing the promising, right? And who was going to do the fulfilling, and did in fact do the fulfilling by causing Sarah to conceive. So, uh, so he's saying, uh, she is uh, a, or you are children of God's promise. You're a result of God fulfilling his promise. And then verse 31, so then brethren, there again he's talking to believers, you are not children of the bondwoman, but of the Free woman of Sarah. Sarai at the time. Sarah and Isaac, her son, were both physically, relationally free. Okay? Their bodies were free. They, they were not, they didn't have a slave master uh, over them. If you are trusting in Jesus and what he did for sinners 
to save you and uh, to justify you and make you right with God and pardon you of your sins, if you are doing so, you too are free, Paul is saying. What does he mean? I'm free. Well, you're not physically free necessarily, but you are spiritually free. And by the way, all the uh, slaves of various societies down through this uh, millennia who have been Christians but uh, but yet were had um, masters over them uh, in the world were also free, as Paul defines freedom here, and the Holy Spirit defines freedom, even though their labor belonged to another individual. But they were spiritually free. And so you are spiritually free. You are free in what sense? You are free from the condemnation of God's law from the covenant of works that requires you to keep God's law perfectly, you are free from the condemnation of that uh, and therefore from the condemnation of God himself. God is no longer pointing a finger at you and saying, you don't measure up. He's not doing that anymore. He is to the unbeliever, by the way. Through his conscience, he's telling me, you don't measure up. But he's not saying that to you if you're a Christian. Not only are you free from God's condemnation, but you also are obviously correspondingly free from the punishment, the curse that God's law, that the covenant of works, imposes upon those who have not perfectly kept God's law. And that curse, that punishment, is both physical and spiritual death in hell for eternity. You are free from the condemnation of God and the punishment of God if you are in Christ, but only if you are trusting in Jesus alone. That's one way in which you are uh, like, uh, uh, or you are a spiritual child of Sarah. There is another way in which you are a spiritual child of Sarah, uh, besides being free, and that is you are like Sarah's son in that you are um, that in that both Isaac's existence and your right standing before God are solely due to God's grace. Solely due to God's grace. Isaac existed only because God miraculously intervened. You're saved uh, and you are forgiven. You are heaven bound only because God miraculously intervened and gave you the gift of faith uh, uh, made your heart alive and gave you the gift of faith to rest in Christ. And you, therefore, are like Isaac. Verse 23 makes this point, as does verse 29. Again, uh, I, I read these verses earlier. Uh, actually, I didn't read verse 23. I read uh, uh, verse 28. But let's read verse 23. But the son of the bondwoman, so the Ishmael, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman there it is again through the promise, just like verse 28 says, you are children of promise. So there's, it's a, it's a divine promise that God himself has to keep by divine, by intervening, uh, 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 supernaturally, and that's what he did on this, on that occasion, and that's what he did whenever you were born again. He intervened supernaturally and caused you to be, come alive and become, uh, uh, a believer in 
Jesus. And also verse 29, similarly, uh, but uh, he refers, I won't reread it again, but he refers to Isaac um, uh, as the son of the Spirit. He was born according to the Spirit. And then he says, so is it is now, meaning so it is true of you now. Uh, there are there are, there are uh, those that are according to the flesh, who uh, who are law, law under the law, who are looking to law keeping to make themselves right with God, and then there are those who are uh, um, under the Spirit, who the Spirit has given a new heart to, and who are looking to Jesus alone and God's grace alone for your redemption. This is how you are a spiritual, and I are a spiritual children of Sarah. Who and what else in our remaining time here correspond to the freedom associated with believing the gospel? Who and what else in this text that Paul mentions here? First of all, the what, a what, the uh, freedom associated with belief in the gospel uh, corresponds to the gracious Abrahamic covenant. Paul indicates this in verse 24. He says, after speaking of, uh, alluding to uh, Hagar and Sarah in verse 23, he then says in verse 24, this is allegorically speaking for these women, Hagar and Ishmael, are two covenants. Well, he's already He's already dealt with the one covenant, the covenant uh, that involved uh, um, uh, Mount Sinai, in which there was a heavy law emphasis and law-keeping emphasis, although it was ultimately gracious, uh, the Mosaic covenant was. But he's saying uh, Hagar uh, aligned with uh, the Mosaic covenant, but he's alluding to the fact that Sarah aligns with the Abrahamic covenant. She corresponds, and the freedom that she uh, and that we who believe the gospel correspond to are the Abrahamic covenant. That came out very awkwardly, but I think you understood what I meant. Anyway, um, the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, uh, which most closely represent or resembled the new covenant, was the Abrahamic covenant. Right? We know that from what Paul says here in Galatians earlier on in chapter 3 and elsewhere in Romans and so on. Um, the the uh, the new covenant prior to the coming of Christ is most uh, res- most resembles the Abrahamic covenant prior to the coming of Christ, and that's Paul's point here. So the freedom associated with belief in the gospel corresponds with the Abrahamic covenant and its emphasis on faith, as opposed to the strong uh, works element that is found in the Mosaic covenant, uh, even though it is not ultimately a uh, works covenant. Secondly, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, as opposed to the earthly Jerusalem of Jesus' day, the heavenly Jerusalem, it too corresponds with the freedom associated with the gospel and believing it. We read this in verse 26. The Jerusalem above, as opposed to the earthly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, and the hour is believer's. She is our mother. The heavenly Jerusalem that the earthly Jerusalem was but a picture of, the heavenly Jerusalem is is the place from which uh, the divine grace, which alone can free enslaved sinners, 
comes. It flows from heaven. Why? Who's in heaven? Jesus. It flows from the throne of Christ, from Christ himself to us. That's where great, and it doesn't pass through Rome. Through the, through the Pope. Or through me, by the way. It comes right from the heavenly king to his elect when he converts them. And so, the heavenly Jerusalem corresponds to the freedom associated with the gospel, which is salvation by uh, uh, resting in another, rather than looking to one's own law-keeping. And then thirdly, the freedom associated with the gospel not only corresponds with the Abrahamic covenant and the heavenly Jerusalem, but it corresponds with believers, as opposed to the Judaizers, the believers of Paul's day. Because unlike the Judaizers, who were trusting partially in their own obedience to God's law to make them right with God, and by trusting partially, they were trusting solely, whether they realized it or not. Uh, unlike those Judaizers uh, who were under the law, uh, true believers are trusting solely in God's promise to redeem them from their, uh, to redeem them through the obedience of Christ. And they're trusting in that promise of God to save us in Jesus as their only hope of salvation. And verse 28 makes this point. You brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. A promise which God made and which God himself had to keep. Application. In conclusion. Verse 30 reads as follows. But what does the scripture say? This is a quote from Genesis 21. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Remember that was uh, what was uh, what ultimately happened. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Just like Sarah and Hagar, and just like Isaac and Ishmael, were incompatible, both the mothers and the sons were incompatible, so too the concept of trusting in one's own law-keeping and in Jesus simultaneously are incompatible. You lose Jesus the moment you look to something else plus Jesus to, for your pardon of sin and for your right standing before God. You lose Jesus. Well, you never had him. You need to ask yourself, am I trusting solely, solely, only in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible who is 100% God, 100% man, and the only mediator between God and sinners? Am I trusting solely in him and what he did in his life, death, resurrection, ascension to make me forgiven, to make me acceptable to God? Am I trusting solely in him Or am I trusting in him plus something? My baptism. My membership in this reformed church. Or in some other church. The fact that I'm an upstanding citizen in my community. Etc., etc. If you are trusting 
in Jesus alone for your forgiveness, then you are a spiritual child of Sarah, the free woman. You are an Isaac. You need to praise the Lord for that. I do too. Because why? It was only the grace of God that made that happen. Only the grace of God. Even though it might have been perceived to be on your part, as it was on mine when I, on November 3rd, 1981, when I was uh, made a profession of faith, I perceived at the time as if I was doing it. And yes, I was making a profession of faith in Christ. I decided to believe in Jesus. I didn't know it at the time, but God decided for me before I decided for Christ. And that's ultimately this case for all of us who are forgiven. God decided for you first in eternity past, and then in time and space gave you a new heart so that you could say, oh, I need Jesus, he's my only hope. You need to praise God. And you need to continue looking to Christ alone. Look at verse 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. I forgot to read this when I read the passage. I should have, because I actually had it in my notes to read it. But look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, is a continuation of the thought of this section on freedom versus uh, bondage. And he, so I'll read verse 31 of chapter 4 and then go into verse 1 of chapter 5. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. And then he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And then, as an application, he says, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Remember, he's talking to people who are tempted to go back to Judaism, who are tempted to believe these Judaizers, and who are tempted to go back under the covenant of works principle of do this and live and don't and you die. And he's saying to them, anybody who's reading or hearing this letter read, don't do this. So the application to you and me is don't ever let anybody persuade you that something other than Jesus and what he, uh, his atoning work is going to make you right with God. Don't ever do it. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus alone and listening to me this morning, such as some good deed that you want to hold up to God and say, see, but I did for you. If you are thinking that way and think that somehow God is going to consider that uh, to, as something that might help you get into heaven, you are sadly mistaken. You are a spiritual child of Hagar whose son was conceived by unbelief and the products of unbelief. And you are heading to hell right now. You are not prepared to meet God. You need to repent of your dependence upon yourself. And you need to flee to Christ alone and his obedience to God to make you a law keeper in God's sight. Do it now if you have not yet done it. And lastly by way of application, 
this is a, kind of an aside, but it's an important one. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. This is an illusion, I think, or at least it certainly applies to church discipline. This is why excommunication is that church discipline and ultimately excommunication, if it doesn't, uh, isn't resolved before that point, needs to be a part of any healthy church. Because we can't have people who are uh, professed unbelievers who are, are clearly not trusting in Jesus in the visible church. They are to be put out. And any church that doesn't practice church discipline is not a healthy church. I won't say it's no church, but it's certainly not a healthy church. Uh, many of the reformers argued that church discipline was a, uh, a mark of the uh, true church that uh, was necessary. I'm not willing to go that far. Um, the right administration of the sacraments and the preaching of the word are necessary. But this points to the need for church discipline, and this is why, though it's an, though it's an unpleasant business for those of us who are involved in it, this is why it is needful business sometimes. And this is also my appeal to you. Please don't, I'll speak on behalf of the other elders and myself, please don't um, make all of us go through that unpleasantness by deviating from the path of righteousness, okay? Deal? <laughs> I, it's the thing I like least about being a minister, that and preaching funerals. Although there's some joy in a funeral if it's for a believer. But um, it's unpleasant. It's, and that's putting it mildly. So save yourself and much, much less important, save us from uh, having to go through that messy business by walking with Jesus. And do that this week, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are such a gracious God that you offer freedom, spiritual freedom from your, the tyranny of uh, the demands of the covenant of works, which are, which is perfection, perfect, perpetual, personal obedience from conception onward, which none of us can even come close to offering or rendering. Thank you that you have delivered us from being under that uh, tyrannical, a principle that would land us all in hell. And you have placed us through the gospel, through Jesus, under the principle of the covenant of grace. You are so marvelously gracious. We praise you and we thank you. Please fill our hearts with uh, gratitude, ongoing and even greater gratitude than we now have for what a merciful and kind God you are. And please, Lord, if there's anyone listening to me who doesn't, and you alone know, who doesn't, isn't walking, um, is not a, 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 an Isaac, is not believing in Jesus alone, in your promise of salvation through Jesus alone. If there's anybody listening who's in that category, Lord, please terrorize that person with your law. 
and then comfort that person with your gospel. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close with our uh, final hymn, uh, 67B in the Psalter hymnal. O God, show mercy to us. 67B. Oh, A? It says B. Uh, Now, maybe we'll find out uh, (laughs) when Lisa starts playing. Is that A or B? Okay, we're going with A. Stand and sing A, please. 67A. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.